It is the summer of 1974. The Justice Department's Victor Warheide is continuing to press Jeffrey McDonald on the details of the events of February 16th and 17th, 1970. At one point, he even has furniture from the crime scene brought into the court and arranged in the manner McDonald said it had been when he was attacked. In a bizarre scene, Warheide has McDonald lay on the couch as another government attorney, James Stroud, pantomimes an attacker ostensibly to get a better idea of how, precisely, the assault unfolded, though perhaps also to signal to the grand jurors how physically implausible the whole story is. This is Matthew Craig Kelly. Welcome back to The Looking Glass. And the wheel of destiny has turned. The survival of peace and freedom will be determined by whether the American people have the moral stamina. <laughs> The great silent majority. Castle. Drive. <laughs> Dustin Morgan composed the music and sound design for this episode. Our cast features Chad Danella as Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, Josh T. Pearson as Victor Warheide, Randall Dudley as Captain Clifford Somers, Stephen Klein as Franz Grebner, Stephen Kavner as Bernard Siegel, Michael Hensley as Captain Hammond Beale. Brian Kovalt as Joe McGinnis, Shano Alexander as Specialist Kenneth Micah, and Shoshana Pearson as Barbara Daw. We'd like to thank Shoshana for hooking us up with Stephen Kavner. You can follow us on Facebook at The Looking Glass True Crime Podcast and on Instagram at The Looking Glass underscore podcast. We will be posting season one related documents, photographs, and short essays regularly at both of these accounts. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends. We appreciate your support. Let's return now to the grand jury. Eventually, McDonald is permitted to read a prepared statement to the court. This statement is somewhat rambling and long-winded, but nevertheless amounts to a powerful prima facie rebuttal of the government's case against him. I here excerpt key portions of it and periodically cut in to clarify McDonald's claims. McDonald. <clears throat> what I really have is not a statement. I just have some notes that I've been jotting down from all the questioning, if I could just go over some points that seem to me are left unclear, if that's okay. I just want to repeat our attitude towards locks. You know, we've had a lot of specific questions about locks. We never worried about it or even thought about it. If we thought about it, we went and locked the door, but it wasn't a big deal. War Heidi. All right. I'd just like to reiterate something that's very interesting to myself at this point. Despite the fact that allegedly and CID agents are going to come here and testify that they were investigating other people I never saw a photo or a lineup of anyone Despite their claims to me and their statements under oath that they had people in custody now It's really bizarre to me that they would do an investigation and investigate 3,500 people and detain people and never show me one single photograph of anyone That's a very unusual way to solve a crime, it seems. Now, I'm sure it's going to occur to the grand jury, if what I'm saying is true, how did this incredible sort of prosecution ever get going? And I'd just like one sentence to sort of my theory, if I'm allowed that. McDonald will now refer to three individuals who played a key role in the investigation that culminated in the Army's Article 32 hearing back in the summer of 1970. Franz Grebner, the head of the CID at Fort Bragg, and two of the investigators working under him, 
Robert Shaw, and William Ivory. It just seems to me from what Mr. Grebner has said under oath and from what Mr. Shaw and Ivory say, especially in these three depositions that we've given you, that what they did was make very, very critical errors on the morning of the 17th, never checked them, have the interview with me six weeks later, and from that point on, they were set up sort of for a prosecution. It sounds absurd, sounds absolutely ridiculous, but Mr. Grebner has testified under oath that he walked in the house, that he made a decision, that the living room was staged, and we asked him why, and he said, because of the flower pot. All he had to do was ask an MP. All he had to do was line up the MP and say, has anyone seen anyone touch anything? He never did it. The first time the MPs were questioned was six months later. Now that's unbelievable police work. The flower pot to which McDonald refers was, along with the tipped over coffee table, a key proof of his having staged the crime scene, according to Franz Grebner, that is. Why? Because it was sitting upright on the living room floor, rather than lying on its side, as it should have been if it had been knocked off the coffee table, or wherever it had been sitting, when McDonald began struggling with the supposed intruders. We will return to this point shortly. So, you know, to come to a rational theory as to why what I'm saying may be true, or may not be true, how could the CID why would the CID do this to Captain McDonald, essentially? It wasn't any malevolent sort of thing with a nasty colonel in the background to ride down Captain McDonald. It was initially stupid mistakes made, but then they acted on those mistakes. They never checked them, and they, then they acted on those mistakes. One of them was the flower pot. I mean, if they think I staged a scene and dumped out a flower pot and then stood the flower pot up that's unbelievable reasoning. They also never bothered to ask the doctor if they had moved anyone because, because to, apparently to them, very important fibers wound up under the body of my wife. Fibers that they say belong to my pajama top. Well, apparently we're never gonna know if they could have belonged to my pajama bottoms either. Here McDonald refers to the fact that medics at the hospital threw out his pajama bottoms which had been ripped badly through the area of the crotch, and thus would have shed fibers in abundance. But the fact is, they never asked the doctor, and the doctor stated that he picked her up and looked at her back, and that the cloth could have fallen off her onto the floor at that point. In addition, I moved her. Apparently, they failed to take that into consideration. McDonald continues harping on the theme of crime scene preservation, or the lack thereof, and soon comes to the testimony of the military police who first arrived on the scene on the morning of February 17th. Sergeant Duffy, an MP, came to the Article 32 hearing and testified he walked into the room and the drawers were open and clothing was hanging out as though they had been ransacked. Apparently, the photographs don't show that. I've never seen the photographs of the bedroom, but the point is the CID sort of neglects to mention all these things. When they say there were no perpetrators in the house, or as they like to say it, alien beings. That's the most absurd reasoning. Look, I'm here, obviously, defending myself, so what weight does my word carry? But to say that they found no evidence of other people in that house when they had the back door open and the front door open, both doors open, having people walking in and out at random with no guard at Kimmy's room, and no guard at Chris's room, and no guard at the master bedroom, you know, preserving the crime scene, all you have to do is read Lieutenant Pock's testimony. 
he had no idea how many men he had under control. He didn't know their names. He didn't give them any orders except don't touch anything. That's all he said. He didn't station guards at the door. There were unknown numbers of people, including someone in dungarees walking through that house who sat on the couch. To reconstruct that initial hour, apparently after they arrived, is going to be impossible. But I suggest to you, sir, that that doesn't make me guilty of homicide. A few moments later, McDonald charges the army with severely mishandling the fingerprint and photographic evidence from 544 Castle Drive. Apparently, we have a significant number of fingerprints, including fingerprints on the door leading into the house to the utility room that were destroyed. Now, I don't know if that's obstruction of justice, but it sure seems like a lot of incompetence in the army. They're guilty of something for that, and I know because I was in the army. The photographs, the same photographs that are alleged, you know, that are allegedly or probably being used to incriminate me again here, I'm not, I'm just railing against the system, sir, are the same photographs that I've seen several copies of with different things in them. We see photographs with my wallet in it, then my wallet was stolen. We see photographs with things on the end of the couch, other photographs with things not on the end of the couch. Moments later, McDonald raises the matter of the Army's apparent failure to establish roadblocks on the morning of the murders in order to capture the intruders as they fled the scene of the crime. Lieutenant Pauk also testified he would have been the one to set up the roadblocks, or at least issue the orders. And he never issued an order for roadblocks. So despite Colonel Krawanek's statement to the press the next day that the base was shut down, there never were roadblocks up. At least we, who have made an attempt, have never been able to find one single person to say there was a roadblock. We found people to say there weren't roadblocks. We have heard comments like, well, there were roving roadblocks. What is a roving roadblock? But the CID and the, and the Colonel Krawanek, the head of the Provost Marshal, apparently implicated me because a group of assailants that were in my house that night were never found. I suggest they weren't found because of that initial couple of hours where unbelievably bad decisions were made. Mr. Grebner stated to us that one agent, now you've got to think about this for a second, one agent interviewed 500 people in two days. That is the most outlandish statement that could ever be made. 500 people in two days? He must have put him in an auditorium. And then he then testified, by the way, that he had to go see most of those people, 500 interviews in two days, and he excluded them. They had alibis. Well, I hope I'm getting my point across. To say that I committed homicide and murdered my wife and kids on that is the most atrocious, insane reasoning. And for me to be here again today is crazy. This is insanity. The army reinvestigation was done a year and a half ago. I haven't heard, I've heard better questioning. I've heard legitimate questioning here, but I haven't heard anything that shouldn't have been asked, if not in the first investigation, in the second investigation. Recall that the army conducted two investigations into the murders. The first culminated in the Article 32 in the summer of 1970. After McDonald was cleared of wrongdoing in the Article 32, both he and his father-in-law, Freddie Kassab, waged a public campaign to have the case reinvestigated in an effort to find the killers and to hold the Army to account for its incompetence in the first investigation. 
The Army ultimately acceded to this demand, reopening the investigation in early 1971 and producing a second report the following year. What did the second investigation consist of? The Army spending a year and a half, two million dollars and 10,000 pages, 3,000 pages or whatever it comes to, making sure that we can't prove that the CID made some mistakes. That's what they did. The witnesses that they talked to, that have since talked to me, said that they asked the exactly same questions as the first time around, exactly. Did Jay McDonald use drugs? Well, yeah, we've heard that. Did Jeff McDonald use drugs? No, not to my knowledge. Thank you. You know, if you add it all up, it sounds terrific. They've had two army investigations, under their words, the biggest investigations the army has ever had, and they can't find the group of four assailants. So therefore, I'm guilty. All I'd like to say, sir, is, you know, you haven't asked me, you know? I didn't murder my wife and my kids. And to the best of my knowledge, despite what the perverse Mr. Ivory thinks, Colette didn't either. And if you want me back in three months, call me back. Or Heidi. All right, Dr. McDonald, I appreciate your appearing before the grand jury and answering all of our questions. And we will... Let, let me just say one last sentence. I don't mean to keep you here all weekend. Let me just give you the last thing I say. Right? An example of the kind of things that these men allegedly investigated and obviously didn't investigate. For instance, Mrs. Daw. A classic example, Mrs. Daw. And I don't know the truth or falsity of this. I honestly know nothing about it except what I heard in the testimony room. Apparently, Mrs. Daw is a warrant officer's wife who lived on post at some time near this time. And this is really a paraphrase. She had a daughter, Kimberly. She had a son, but apparently he was a young, blonde son named Chris. Her husband is my height and weight and has blonde hair. He was a helicopter pilot or something like that, and he was in Vietnam or Thailand or Laos or something. And she testified that she was held prisoner for several days by a group of what she said were hippies, including a black male, a girl with wigs, including a blonde wig, and several Caucasian males. And as a matter of fact, she called the CID to her apartment to kick these people out. Well, after the assault on myself and my family, she stated, which I have no way of ascertaining anymore the veracity of, she stated she called the CID and told them this. And they never came to interview her. They didn't think it was significant. She lived a couple blocks away. She was held prisoner by a group of people who were on drugs who told her that they were going to come back and get her kids. The CID on the phone decided that was not an appropriate avenue to investigate this case. And this again is something, just one of a lot of stories that are so bizarre of the handling of this case that is beyond belief. So I don't mean to harangue the grand jury. I honestly don't. Well, we'll inquire into the matters, Dr. McDonald, and I'm glad you mentioned them specifically. Now I have one final question. Do you have any criticism concerning the way this matter's been handled before this grand jury? If so, we would prefer to hear about it now rather than to hear about it at a later date or read about it in the press. No, sir. I have no criticism. If the claims McDonald makes here are true, they are arguably devastating to the government's case against him. But, as Warheide demonstrated, McDonald cannot be taken at his word. So let's go through them. Let's start with this one. 
McDonald stated that Franz Grebner had testified during the Article 32 that a single CID agent had, over a period of only two days, interviewed 500 individuals in the hunt for the assailants he described. That is mostly accurate. It was over a three-day period, to be fair, but it would also be fair to note that Grebner's broader claims regarding the number of people interviewed sound even more ridiculous when one consults the transcript of his testimony. Again, we are going back in time now to the Article 32 hearing in the summer of 1970. Army Prosecutor Captain Clifford Somers. How many people were interviewed by these investigative agencies in the first week after the, uh, after the murders? Franz Grebner. In the Fayetteville-Fort Bragg complex, it would be in excess of 3,500 people. Can you tell us approximately what percentage of these people were interviewed specifically with respect to the four alleged assailants of Captain McDonald and his family? In the initial stages, the majority of these people would have been interviewed in connection with that. Can you give us some idea how many people were interviewed in the first week by the Criminal Investigative Division? It would be about 1,500. And does the same percentage apply there with respect to the subject of the interview? Yes, it would. Grebner's claim sounded implausible even when the questioner was a sympathetic Army prosecutor. On cross-examination by Siegel, it got worse. Siegel. How did you come to conclude that there were 1,500 interviews by the CID personnel on Fort Bragg? Grebner. I was asked for an approximation. Yes, sir. What was the basis of your approximation? By the number of people that were doing the interviewing and the number of interviews that they did. How do you know the number of interviews they did? I can only accept what they reported to me. Well, did you write down what each of these agents reported to you as the total number of persons they interviewed each day? Did I write that down? Yes, sir. No, sir. Well, where did you get the figure of 1,500 other than... Uh, are you saying to your recollection of what they told you on February 17th, 18th, and 19th? From my recollection and also from the written records that we do have. Well, will you tell us, please, what the written records reflect in terms of total number of people. That is, can you give us the figure which is validated by written records of interviews? During that period, a thousand. Are you telling us there are a thousand interviews? Twelve hundred, somewhere in that area. There was a thousand names that you had and noted in your file of persons who were interviewed? Yes, sir. Those interviews were made in three days? On those three days. And how many hours a day were your investigators working those days? 16, 18 hours therein. Have you figured out the amount of time that was devoted to each interview on the basis of the number of hours they were working? I would have no way of knowing that. Do you have any idea of how long or how short the interviews were? I object. He answered the question. Your objection is overruled, Captain Summers. It would vary with each interview. Some would last a matter of several minutes. Some would last perhaps hours. 
Can you tell me how many interviews that your agents conducted lasted one hour or more? In those days? Yes, sir. Those three days, perhaps five or six. Siegel asked Grebner how many CID investigators were conducting these 1,500 interviews, five or six of which exceeded an hour, in a mere three days. Grebner ticked off seven names and added that Provost Marshall investigators had also conducted some of the interviews. Let's assume they numbered seven, too. One individual had apparently conducted 500 interviews in three days, so I suppose another 13 could have conducted 1,000. It's still a whole lot of interviews, though. And if we're being serious, Grebner's claim is not believable. Clearly, then, as McDonald was suggesting, the army was falsely claiming to have scoured heaven and earth in search of the killers. Why? Why not give a more realistic portrait of the early search for the supposed intruders? It may have been that the army was protesting too much. That is, their exaggerated claims regarding the search may have pointed to an underlying knowledge that no serious search for the killers had been undertaken. We can do more than speculate in this connection. According to a memo sent by Fayetteville FBI agent Jim Lothspeech to Director J. Edgar Hoover, Lothspeech had met with Colonel Krawanek on the day of the murders. He instructed Krawanek that, since civilians had been involved in the crime, the FBI would be assuming control of the investigation. But Krawanek assured Lothspeech that Captain McDonald had committed the murders, so no civilians had been involved and therefore the Army, not the FBI, would be heading up the investigation. Given the Army's knowledge of McDonald's guilt on the morning of February 17th, how serious could the search for the non-existent intruders over the next three days, much less weeks, have been? Let's look at another of McDonald's claims before the grand jury. He said that he was unaware of any evidence that roadblocks had ever been established around Fort Bragg in order to catch the intruders he had described to investigators. Here, too, MacDonald was right. Indeed, more right than he knew. As McGinnis himself wrote in Fatal Vision, Contrary to what the provost marshal had told the press, roadblocks had never been established. As an open post from which there were more than a dozen exits on well-traveled routes, Fort Bragg could not have been sealed in time to prevent the killers had there been killers, from escaping. All that had been done in the first moments after the discovery of the bodies was to call the morning shift of military police in early and to have them check cars at random, looking for one containing two white men, one black man, and a girl with a floppy hat and long blonde hair. By 6 a.m., even this ineffectual attempt at search had been discontinued because of the heavy buildup of traffic on post. McGinnis, naturally, embeds an apologetic in his acknowledgement of the Army's failure to establish roadblocks, suggesting that doing so would have been infeasible. This itself seems implausible, however. At a minimum, the Army could have set up roadblocks at the exits closest to McDonald's residence. McDonald's complaint about his pajama bottoms having been thrown out at the hospital was also valid. His accusers had made a great deal of the presence of his blue pajama fibers in the children's rooms and master bedroom. How did they get there, if he'd torn his pajama top in the living room and then removed it in the master bedroom, all before ever entering the children's rooms? This was seemingly powerful circumstantial evidence of MacDonald's guilt, or at least of the unreliability of his memory of the sequence of events on February 17th, until one remembered that MacDonald's pajama bottoms which he had never removed, 
were also torn, as three different medics who tended to McDonald on February 17th testified during the Article 32. Small wonder, then, that blue pajama fibers had been found everywhere he claimed to have been, including the children's rooms. McDonald also disputed the supposed significance of the fact that blue fibers had been located beneath Colette's body. How, investigators wondered, did they get there, if McDonald's pajama top had been torn in the living room and he then draped it over her prone body on entering the bedroom? Didn't the fact that fibers had been found beneath Colette's body also indicate that McDonald's story was inaccurate? Whereas, if, as the army surmised, he and Colette had begun violently fighting in the master bedroom and she had torn his pajama top, fibers might have fallen on the floor prior to her death, and her dead body, therefore, may have wound up on top of them. But this theory held water only if Colette had lain undisturbed prior to investigators locating the fibers beneath her body. Alas, the physician who examined Colette at 544 Castle Drive that morning, Dr. William Neal, testified that he did move her body, and his memory was confirmed by the testimony of Major Joe Parson, the assistant provost marshal on the scene. If fibers from McDonald's torn pajama top and bottoms were scattered throughout the apartment, and an unknown number of individuals were moving throughout the crime scene, anyone might have deposited them beneath Colette, including the physician and the investigators themselves. What about McDonald's assertion that an MP had testified at the Article 32 that when he arrived at 544 Castle Drive in the early morning hours of February 17th, drawers in the master bedroom appeared to have been pulled open, such that items of clothing were hanging out, but that in the crime scene photos, the drawers were closed? During his Article 32 testimony back in 1970, Sergeant Robert Duffy did claim that he had noticed a drawer pulled out in the master bedroom and had formed the impression that, in his words, stuff was hanging out of the drawers, as if someone had looked through them. Yet, when shown a crime scene photograph of the same chest of drawers, all of the drawers were closed. Duffy stuck by his testimony nevertheless. One of the drawers had been open, with clothes hanging out. In fact, Duffy was not the only MP whose distinct memory of the crime scene differed from what had been recorded in the crime scene photos. During his Article 32 testimony, MP Kenneth Micah was shown pictures of both the master bedroom and the living room that differed from his recollection, of which he was certain. Micah followed behind Sergeant Tavere, who was the first person to enter the residence that morning. When Micah saw Colette, her midriff was exposed but in the crime scene photo shown to him during the Article 32, it was covered by what appeared to be a white towel. Micah also did not remember the blue pajama top being draped over Colette's chest. On the contrary, he had a distinct memory of Colette's exposed left breast. The crime scene photographs of the living room also did not conform to Micah's memory. When he had entered the living room, among the items he'd noticed was the infamous flower pot, which was lying on its side. The crime scene photos showed the flower pot standing upright, by contrast. Siegel pressed Micah during the Article 32. Siegel. Do you have any doubt in your mind now, when you first came into the living room, after Captain McDonald was carried out, that that white flower pot was lying on its side rather than standing on its base as it appears in the photograph? Micah. No, sir. 
As it turned out, there were two sets of crime scene photographs, and the second set had been taken six hours after the first. The original photographer had become ill on the scene. He had also neglected to bring enough flashbulbs, so the investigators had to bring in another photographer who was all the way down in Georgia, at Fort Gordon. When the CID originally interrogated McDonald back in April 1970, they'd made a big deal of the upright flower pot. They told McDonald that the scene looked staged to them and cited the coffee table and upright flower pot as key pieces of evidence for their theory. McDonald had wondered aloud why, if he were staging a crime scene, he would set the flower pot upright rather than leaving it on its side. They replied that someone had set the pot upright, and they were right but Micah's testimony confirmed that it hadn't been McDonald. All of this testimony casts significant doubt on the evidentiary value of the crime scene photos in which investigators had placed so much stock. McDonald also complained about the fingerprinting at the scene. Was there anything to this complaint? Again, yes. Researchers Jerry Allen Potter and Fred Bost turned up ample evidence of Army malfeasance on the fingerprinting front. The chief CID lab technician on the scene on February 17th, Hilliard Medlin, along with his accompanying photographer, Howard Page, destroyed 12 finger and palm prints. Along with the coffee table and flower pot, CID investigator William Ivory had cited the print-free baby bottle and kitchen and master bedroom telephones as evidence of McDonald's staging the scene. McDonald had obviously wiped these items of prints, or prints would easily have been found. But the same Dr. Neal that had moved Colette's body also reported seeing someone handle the baby bottle after Jeffrey McDonald had already been taken to the hospital, who wiped his prints off. Likewise with the bedroom telephone, on which M.P. Tiver called his desk sergeant, who wiped Tiver's prints off, not McDonald. Nearly 40 of the prints investigators did successfully process were of unknown origin. Might they have been left by the intruders? Between the destroyed and unidentified prints, and those McDonald clearly hadn't wiped from various items, where exactly was the fingerprint evidence implicating McDonald? In a wilderness of error, Errol Morris, drawing on the findings of UC Berkeley forensic expert John Thornton, cites multiple examples of the Army's incompetence in processing 544 Castle Drive for fingerprints. The inside of the utility room screen door, where the killers, if there were killers, exited the apartment, wasn't dusted for prints. The door itself wasn't completely dusted, nor the light switch. There were unidentified prints on Colette's jewelry boxes, and the dresser on which the boxes sat wasn't then fully dusted for prints. Note that not only McDonald, but also Colette's mother, Mildred, told investigators that pieces of Colette's jewelry were missing. As with the Army's early failure to secure the crime scene, the fingerprint fiasco made nonsense of its claim that there was no evidence of intruders. McDonald's complaint was again valid. Finally, McDonald told Warheide and the grand jurors about a Mrs. Daw who had testified at the Article 32 and claimed that she had been held hostage, only blocks from 544 Castle Drive, by a group of hippies that included a black man and a girl with a blonde wig. McDonald was, as he admitted, unclear on the details, and his depiction was a bit too neat, but the story is nevertheless worth briefly relating. The Mrs. Daw in question was Barbara Daw, wife of Chief Warrant Officer Roy Daw. 
In the summer of 1969, the Dawes were living about four miles off base from Fort Bragg in Fayetteville. Roy was away in Vietnam, and Barbara had taken in a troubled teenager named Mary Hardin. Mary was 15 years old. She had a toddler who was living with her in-laws. Mary's presence in the Daw home attracted a problematic element, including two young soldiers from Fort Bragg, Randall Foster and Thomas McCormick. The pair frequently brought their girlfriends along to visit Mary at Mrs. Dawes. This group apparently commandeered the Dawes' blue 1967 Volkswagen. When Mrs. Daw demanded that they return the car, Foster threatened to kill both her and her two young children, who, as it happened, were named Kim and Chris, just like the McDonald children. Over a period of several weeks, both Foster and McCormick repeated this threat at least half a dozen times. Mrs. Daw ultimately learned from Foster that the group was using her car to transport drugs into Fayetteville. Their connection was reportedly a black male. Mrs. Daw wrote her husband in Vietnam regarding this situation, and he immediately received permission to return home. In November 1969, he and Mrs. Daw moved into military housing on Fort Bragg. Their residence was only a few blocks from the McDonald's. Mrs. Daw never saw Foster or McCormick after that, but she did begin receiving strange phone calls, some of which she believed to be from McCormick, but others of which sounded, according to Mr. Daw, like a black male. Siegel questioned Mrs. Daw at the Article 32. Siegel. Now, about when did you move on to the post? Daw. About November. 1969. Yes. And what was the address again that you moved to? 119 LeBlanc. And do you know where the McDonald House is located? At 544 Castle Drive? Not until after I heard the news. Can you tell me now, now that you know where the house is, how far your place was on LeBlanc? Castle Drive is just a couple of blocks. When did you learn about the McDonald killings? The morning after. My husband and I had set the alarm, the radio, to go off real loud. It went off that morning and they were telling the news and they were telling about the McDonald children getting killed and his wife. Did they mention the names of the McDonald children? They had upset me because all of the past flashed back to me about hippies and four people and I happened to... I told my husband to and... He went there on post to the MP station. Could you give us any information, please, as to the appearance of Mary Harden? She had short, reddish hair, kind of a, a blonde shred. Did she ever wear any kind of hairpiece? She had a fall. It was long hair. It was about the color of her hair. When you say fall, is that a hairpiece which really gives the effect of long hair in the back? Yes. It doesn't change the contour of the hair in the front? No. About how tall was Mary Harden? About 5'4", maybe? No, 5'5", I guess. And what was her build? She was about average. How about Chris Jones? That was McCormick's girlfriend. About how tall is she? She was sort of tall. 
She was slim. Was Chris Jones taller than Mary Harden? Yes. Was she as tall as yourself? No, not quite. You are how tall? I'm five seven. What color of hair did Chris Jones have? It was about shoulder length and it was long blonde. Well, light blonde. And what was her build? She was slim. Now you related these various episodes to your husband, did you not? The things that happened to you while he was away. Yes, I did. In their questioning of the Dawes, Army lawyers established that Foster and McCormick had been transferred to Vietnam by the time of the McDonald murders, and thus could not have been among the intruders at 544 Castle Drive on February 17th. The government argued that the Dawes' testimony should therefore be stricken from the record on grounds of its irrelevancy, but Colonel Rock denied this request. Was the testimony irrelevant? Perhaps but it did offer up a slice of the frightening milieu that lay just outside Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, a milieu of drugs, violence, and the toxic mix of civilians and soldiers these dark and chaotic forces brought together. In that sense, the Dawes Article 32 testimony again demonstrated that the Castle Drive intruders had not been conjured out of thin air, but rather out of the local culture, where persons like them, even if not them, proliferated. Further evidence of this milieu turned up in the interviews the CID conducted with McDonald's neighbors. One was Janice Pendleyshock, whose residence was a stone's throw from the McDonald's. She estimated her bedroom was 50 feet from Colette and Jeffries. Mrs. Pendleyshock told investigators that one morning, two months prior to the murders, somebody had broken into her residence. Neither she nor her husband was home. In a chilling portent of the word pig being written on the McDonald's headboard in blood, the intruder at the Pendley Shocks had entered the master bedroom and, using Mrs. Pendley Shocks' lipstick, scrawled obscenities on the vanity mirror, along with the words, look in the closet. She did, but she found nothing out of the ordinary, according to the CID report. The trespasser had also strewn Mrs. Pendleyshock's undergarments about the bedroom, a textbook fetish burglar behavior. The likelihood that the same individual had anything to do with the McDonald murders was thus perhaps not high, although one cannot be sure, especially in light of M.P. Duffy's testimony regarding the clothes hanging out of the drawer in the McDonald's master bedroom, which, again, was only 50 feet from the Pendleyshock's. Regardless, the incident again spoke to the atmosphere of danger that lingered on the edge of, and occasionally spilled onto, the military base at Fort Bragg. Mrs. Pendleyshock's statement to the CID also corroborated McDonald's story in a more specific regard. McDonald had begun his rambling monologue before the grand jury with a comment about how he and Colette often left their doors unlocked, an important point given that investigators had found no evidence of a break-in on February 17th, no damaged locks, windows, or door handles. It thus appeared that if intruders had entered the residence, they had simply walked in through an unlocked door, as had the MPs themselves in the pre-dawn hours of February 17th. Mrs. Pendleyshock, who had only a passing acquaintance with the McDonald's, offered unprompted confirmation of Jeffrey's claim, 
She told the CID that she had met Mrs. McDonald at an officer's wife's coffee in January 1970, and Mrs. McDonald mentioned to her that she felt so safe on Fort Bragg that she left her doors constantly unlocked. Another neighbor of the McDonald's, Rosalie Edwards, told the CID the same thing. As another report noted, Mrs. Edwards had occasion to go to the McDonald home during the day, primarily to use the McDonald dryer, which was located in the utility room. The door to this room, the outside door, was always open. Colette never locked this door, and Mrs. Edwards recalled talking to Colette about the secure feeling one has living on an army post. One more thing. Mrs. Pendleyshock told the CID that her dog's barking had briefly awakened her sometime during the night of February 16th, 17th, and she had heard something. A woman was screaming in the distance. And children. She was certain it had been more than one. Were crying. All at the same time. 